0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: I think everyone who takes the test should feel good about themselves for the fact that they had the courage to take the test. (laughs) I mean, we all like to believe that we are fair and objective and unbiased. And so when a test reveals to us that we're not as... Unbiased as we like to believe, it definitely comes as
0: a surprise. The test Kahaley Dudd is talking about is one that reveals the biases we have that are unconscious. It can be unsettling to find out you have them. And I can vouch for that because I took the test once myself and I found the results hard to believe. But unconscious bias seems to be a trait pretty much all of us have. Dr. Dutt is the diversity officer at the Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. And she's written about the role these unconscious biases have in distorting judgments about who can be a scientist. And that's to the detriment of science itself. This is so great that you could come in today because you work in such an important area, especially in this in this time in our history.
1: It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, it's an honor to have you. Thank you. I think what's central to what you do is this question of unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. How would you define it? What does it mean to you?
1: Unconscious bias, which is also called implicit bias um, or implicit association, these are as the word suggests, unconscious associations that we make when we see certain things. So for example, The implicit association test showed that people, regardless of what their own race was, they're more likely to associate uh, black faces with violence than white faces. So that's an example of an unconscious bias. And why that's relevant is that whether we like to admit it or not, we all have unconscious biases. And when you have a field, like a certain STEM field, like, for example, geosciences where I work, a lack of diversity and inclusion in that field is further reinforced and perpetuated by these unconscious biases and and the stereotype threat that arises from it. And when I say a stereotype threat, I mean a negative, usually negative portrayal or perception of someone based on their identities. So mm. if you see, you know, a, a tall, big built black man, you might suddenly think they're threatening. Or if you see a Latina, you assume she's a janitor. So that's, that, those are stero- examples mm. of stereotype threat. And so unconscious bias and stereotype threat work together very closely in this larger context of diversity and inclusion.
0: I think the problem for most of us who come across the term for the first time or take a test, as I did once, (laughs) to determine if I had implicit or unconscious bias and the test said I did. The first reaction was, no, wait a minute. No, that's not. I've, I've picketed for equality. So how could I possess this? But the, the key seems to be uh, the unconscious part of it, the part okay. that is not uh, at the surface where you make conscious decisions. It's where you respond immediately. For instance, the idea in the test I took was that you would, if you saw a The word executive and you saw a black face, African-American face, you would take longer to process Mm -hmm. that than if you saw athlete in Mm -hmm. an African-American face. So Mm -hmm. that implicitly you tend to associate those two things in a stereotypical way. That's hard to take for somebody who's convinced that they've devoted themselves to equality. But the the fact that it is not at your conscious level seems to indicate to me—I'm I'm curious to know what you think about this—seems to indicate to me that there are factors affecting your your brain, affecting your perception that you don't have conscious control over. For instance, what you see in the world around you, what you see on television, in advertising— and so on, confirms mm-hmm. these and perhaps even implants these biases to some extent.
1: Absolutely, yes. I mean, I, th- I think you've sort of you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, we are all impacted by what's going on in society. We're all conditioned a, so- a certain way. So regardless of our own race or our own gender or our own, say, sexual identity, we tend to receive very, very similar types of conditioning. And so we're more likely to behave in similar ways than not. So one example or some examples that I like to give are when we looked at this study for letters of recommendation and gender differences.
0: So these were lab uh, supervisors recommending yes. their graduate yes. students yes. to other For other a postdoctoral
1: labs. position, yes. yes. And what we found is that both male and female letter writers were displaying the same behavior, and that is they were describing male applicants w- with with more superlative phrases like brilliant or star. And and, and male women. and
0: female
1: mm-hmm.
0: professors were doing it the yes, same. Yes, yes, doesn't absolutely. that make you crazy?
1: It does. But the thing is that you know this. It isn't just about this specific case. When you look at the re- the broader results of the implicit association test, one of the ones that you took. Um across the board, there's a preference, there's a more positive association for whites over people of color, regardless of the identity of the person who's taking the test, mm. or that there's a greater preference or a more positive association with being straight than with being LGBTQ, regardless of the identity of the person taking the test. So we all receive very, very similar conditioning that we absorb and so it's it's sort of a myth to think that it's only men who are sexist or only whites who are racist or only uh, you know heterosexuals who can be uh, you know homophobic or heterosexist so, so
0: I've 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 heard somebody say who has someone else who has studied this mm-hmm. that changing what you see should help is there is there evidence of that that as people, perhaps even at a young age, Mm -hmm. are exposed to more and more instances that break the stereotype that it changes their implicit bias?
1: Absolutely. In fact, very recently, there were, I think, uh, two such studies that showed this. One showed that children are now at much higher rates drawing pictures of women when they're asked to draw a picture of a scientist. Mm. Earlier, it was mostly drawing pictures of men and, to be honest, very unflattering pictures of men (laughs) when when they were asked what a scientist looks like. But now more and more children... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, nerdy, crazy, that sort of look. But now they're drawing more and more pictures of women. And so, you know, and and that's just been a result of very conscious messaging of taking children to labs, of introducing them to female scientists... And the thing is that once it's pointed out to someone and they're receptive to it, it becomes something that they carry with them. Like you can't unknow it after that. And so it definitely changes your behavior. And for, for the people who are receptive to it, I mean, for those who are not, who are resistant to it, that's a whole other story.
0: You yourself were saved from some implicit bias, I think.
1: <laughs> Thanks to nature geoscience, yes.
0: Tell me about that.
1: Um, well, uh, this was a study uh, on, on, on gender differences and letters of recommendation. And uh, for the field of geosciences, up until that point, there hadn't been such a study. So there had been studies for... Um, chemistry, biochemistry, medicine, and I think even psychology, but none for geoscience. And part of my role as Lamont's diversity officer, where I'm also the academic affairs officer, is that I have access to letters of recommendation and and, and, and participating in, in these discussions. So I thought it would be a great idea to conduct this study for the geosciences and, you know, See what the results were, and then try to publish it somewhere mainstream, so that people realize that it's important. That it's not something that I just spoke to my immediate colleagues about, but it's something that was given importance enough to be to be published in in, in a peer reviewed journal, and. Um, but even as I was doing that, and I had some wonderful colleagues who, uh, you know, who, who I worked with on this paper, but even as I was doing that, we were familiar with the research on implicit bias, and in particular male STEM faculty tend to be very resistant to the idea that gender bias is real. And my own paper entirely was about, in fact,
2: <laughs> right.
0: so gender now, bias. now this had to be peer-reviewed by <laughs> Exactly, by gender
1: bias. And so, and then on top of that, my PhD is actually in public policy, and it wasn't in a quote-unquote pure STEM field. And, you know, I'm an administrator rather than a faculty or a physical scientist. And so, I knew I had all of these things that would potentially work against me. And I realized the irony of it, because here I'm trying to submit a paper on bias. And at the same time, I'm going to be subject to those very biases that I'm writing about. So
0: how did you escape that?
1: Um, Nature geoscience has a double blind option. And so I selected the double blind option, which means the people who are reviewing my paper don't get to know who I am. And so they did that, and, and also I would—I mean, I just you know while we're on the subject of uh, Nature Geoscience, I mean they, I—I I, I mean kudos to them for showing leadership on the field. I mean not just necessarily about the uh, the paper on the letters of recommendation, but even the more recent piece on race and racism in the geosciences—the one uh, the one that spread so quickly—they um, they it was. Their response to it was wonderful. When I proposed the idea to them and I said that, you know, this is really important and we should consider doing something like this. They were uh, they were very supportive and they were very, I mean, it's, it's race is such a difficult subject to talk about. And to many uh, people, and to many white people especially, the word racism is like the ultimate insult. I mean, to be called a racist is an ultimate insult. And so it you know it was a piece and, and 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 you know if you read the piece it's 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 pretty hard hitting i mean it's it's not this soft mellow gentle piece and so they uh you know they were they were really on board and they were very very respectful throughout the entire process and at no point did i feel that there was any tone policing going on so
0: tell me about tone policing That's an interesting (laughs) term. So when you bring up the whole question of bias, Mm -hmm. biased behavior, Mm -hmm. not just perception, Mm -hmm. um, bringing it up can often feel to the person you're bringing it up to as an attack. attack. Mm -hmm. So how much attention do you pay to the tone? Do you have a strategic tone you try to use or do you Um, just lay it out and let the chickens eat what they will?
1: um, I would say it's a mix of both because I mean, so I am, you know, very obviously uh, a, a person of color, but I work in a predominantly white campus and I happen to have the role of a diversity officer, which means I'm talking to people about things like bias and race and Wait, racism. It's your job. It's my job, yes. It's part <laughs> of my job, yes. So, um, and so sometimes what I'll do is, you know, I'll privately run something by a handful of people and say, what do you think of this? Mm. And depending on their responses, and even there, sometimes people, you know, white people will say, oh, no, I think it's too gentle. You should hit harder. (laughs) And I'll be like, yeah, you can say that, but I can't, (laughs) trust me, I can't say that. Because the other dynamic is that when it's a really sensitive subject like race, when the message comes to you from someone who is, say, you know, a fellow white person or a fellow black person or, you know, a fellow you know, person of your own race, you tend to internalize that message very differently as opposed to when it comes from someone of another race where you're more likely to perceive it as an attack. And so that's something I have to be mindful of all the time, like like 24-7. I mean, sometimes I jokingly describe my job as, like, at one time, I would say this diversity stuff is, you know, it's 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 like walking on a tightrope. Now I say it's like walking on a tightrope in high heels. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wondered when I read the article that you wrote in Scientific American, mm-hmm. when you were talking about some of the elements that lead Mm -hmm. to the problems that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You talked about the nature of scientific inquiry being one of the elements Mm -hmm. that can give us trouble. In what way?
1: In the way implicit biases creep in. So, for example, scientists, I mean, they love to believe that they're objective. And where it comes to their science, they are. But where it comes to their role as a human being, They're just as biased as anybody else. It's just that there is a much greater resistance to accept that. And and there's a sense that, oh, we're scientists, we're objective.
0: Oh, so in other words, they've devoted their professional lives to being objective, and therefore they assume vehemently that they're objective in their human relations as well.
1: Absolutely. I see. And also, the other piece that comes in is that unlike the social sciences where— human behavior, where you're studying human behavior. In the physical sciences, you're not. And so there is a much bigger separation between the subject matter and the behavior of the person studying that subject matter. So so that sort of promotes a culture where being a good scientist, which means bringing in funding, which means publishing papers, which means getting tenure and so on, is much more valued and much more prized than being a good human being
0: mm-hmm. i'm I'm wondering if in the situation you're describing um, if the positive stereotypes around women, mm-hmm. for instance that they're considered to be more empathic mm-hmm. generally than men whether that's true or not if the, does that Kind of positive stereotype work against a woman when she's trying to work in the so-called hard sciences.
1: I would say yes. I mean, and and a great example of that that I like to give uh, in my bias trainings is, you know, when a man, or usually you know, when it's a white man who's who's assertive about something, then he's perceived as a leader. You know, people call well, him he a leader. Gets cra- get, you get he gets points credit. for even
0: being able to cry.
1: It, but when but when a woman is assertive, like if it's a white woman who's assertive, she's typically labeled as being bossy or, you mm-hmm. know, some other yeah. euphemism. If it's a black woman who's being assertive, then she's labeled, quote-unquote, an angry black woman. Mm-hmm. Or if it's a Latina, then she's, quote-unquote, emotional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so there's, all of these have, you know, they show this implicit expectation that people are supposed to behave a certain way and somehow defying that. Is you know is noticed and for example for Asians, Asian women are supposed to be I think docile and obedient and I think I I know I I violate those every single day, <laughs> but uh, but well, that's but that's part of what you know how we're you know we're first creatures of society. I mean we're we are human beings first who receive very similar conditioning and so. When we're very used to seeing people in leadership roles as being men or being white men, our unconscious associations will also reflect that.
0: And you make me think of the value of actually thinking what the other person has gone through that has resulted in what sounds to you like an angry statement or flying off the handle uh, on a moment's notice. I think those of us who have a privileged position through no fault or or effort of our own (laughs) uh, think, well, I'm not angry. Why should should she be? Mm -hmm. When in fact, that person may have been subjected to something that would make us just as angry if we had been subjected to it since childhood. But it's it's hard to arrive at that understanding of the other person's life unless we hear their story in a vivid way that makes us makes us really change the way we think. Do you, do you suppose?
1: Absolutely. And first off, I just want to thank you for acknowledging privilege because a lot of people, when you mention privilege, they behave like it's an attack on them, mm-hmm. and then you're put in a situation where a certain privileged person who doesn't necessarily have an experience of a certain oppression or challenge feels that they're being attacked when their perspective on that oppression is questioned by someone who's actually experienced it. And so I think one one way of, you know, to, to, to sort of encapsulate what you said, I think microaggressions build up over time. Like these are these small things. And one of our senior scientists, a white male senior scientist, he put it perfectly when he said it's like, Someone is constantly poking you on the shoulder every two minutes. And you know, you you're just you, doing you get your black own black and blue eventually. Exactly. I mean, you <laughs> you know, you're just doing your own work. You you're not yeah. asking for trouble. You're doing your own thing, but someone's poking you. Then two minutes later, someone else just poked you, and then five minutes later, someone else just poked you. And this has happened to you over the course of your whole life. And so it's not so much about just one incident that happened. As it is about these small things that build up over time. And why that's problematic in a, again, you know, in a in a very homogeneous field, like say the geosciences, which is predominantly white male, is that there is a tendency to view these incidents as isolated incidents. Mm. So, anytime and, and you bring and how, up something, how bad can they exactly. Be? And anytime you bring it up, oh, that's anecdotal. Oh, that's isolated. So, but when you speak to all the people of color who actually experience this behavior on a pretty daily basis, you realize it's a very large part of their identity and a large part of their experience in the workplace that they carry with them, which is often a contributing factor to why they leave these fields.
0: It's so hard to get the message from each side to cross over the Mm -hmm. divide without being filtered through defensiveness and feelings of being attacked. I'm sure that people here sometimes talk about privilege as something they should feel guilty about. And that's about where it ends instead of understanding what somebody is going through and then going to the next step of wanting to make it better rather than just being mired in guilt. But by the same token, when people want to make it better, they sometimes want to make it better in a way that they think is better. (laughs) And it's not really helping. When we come back, Kohaley Dutt talks about how people's stories of discrimination, including one of her own, can help those of us who are the unaware privileged to understand a little better just how corrosive the everyday experience of discrimination can be.
2: On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, Mild Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, Mild Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com.
0: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kahali Dutt. I'm thinking as we talk of the reaction of some of us when we hear... The story behind the understanding that, let's say, women are not held up to the same standard as men. (laughs) So we hear the story of their complaint of a lifetime of this. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we hear the story, someone says, oh, you're playing the victim card again. So how are we going to find out if we don't hear the story?
1: And that's, that's exactly the whole point. I mean, there is so whether it's, you know, it, for, for women, one would say, oh, you're playing the gender card. For a person of color, you'd say you're playing the race card and so on. So the the implication being that you weren't good enough to get this on your own merit. And that's why you had to say, oh, because I'm a woman or because I'm gay or because I'm a person of color. That's why, you know, I didn't get this. So, so that 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 realization, that that feeling that people have to actually sort of break through this. i mean, it it's it's very real. and 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 to sort of to to address your comment that unless we hear these individual stories, we're never going to know how bad the situation really is because these voices don't get heard because the people at the very top tend to be of a certain demographic and only their voices get heard. and That was part of what really prompted me, that pushed me to write the recent piece on race and racism um, in Nature Geoscience. Because in my years as, as the diversity officer, one thing that became very, very clear to me was there was this fundamental disconnect between white people and people of color in terms of how they view race, not just in terms of shaping their own identities, but the role that it plays in the workplace, where white people are much more likely to think that, oh, just being white, it just happens to be incidental, like it's not a big deal. And discussing race in the workplace is not necessary or not even appropriate. Whereas for people of color, it's a very integral part of their identity. And based on the various experiences of their everyday life, it's very, very, it's something that is, it's something that they're subjected to all the time, but on the same, you know, by the same token, it's something that a lot of white people had absolutely no clue that this was even happening mm. under their noses on their, on their own campus. And in fact, in response to um, my piece, somebody emailed me, it was, it was a white woman who emailed me and she said that the piece resonated with her on two levels. One is that There was, you know, as as a woman, as a white woman in STEM fields, she faced a lot of discrimination. She faced a lot of challenges and hurdles herself. But now that she has a biracial daughter who's going, who, who goes to college in a STEM field, and she's hearing firsthand all of the racist experiences that her daughter experiences every single day, she just, couldn't believe that all that was happening under her nose the whole time and she just never paid any attention Mm. to it. And the only reason she started paying attention to it was because her own daughter started telling her, hey, mom, do you know this is what they said? This is what they do on a daily basis. And so it was just really important for people to understand that this is a much bigger deal than most people think it is. And in private, many of the conversations I've had with people of color about race tend to be very painful, very emotional, and along with it, the fear that if they talk about it to, you know, a white boss or a white colleague, they'll be perceived as not being serious about their science or not being, uh, you know, not being good enough and therefore using the race card or being a troublemaker or being divisive. So that piece is very, very real, and it's the reality for a lot of people in STEM fields today.
0: You make me wonder what your story has been. <laughs> Do you mind telling?
1: Sure. I mean, I mean, off the top of my, I mean, I actually have dozens of stories, but um, maybe one that that isn't. Maybe I'll, you know, I won't. I, I won't speak about one that's specific to um, to academia. Or um, Well, actually, no, I think I will. I think it's, I, I think it's important. <laughs> this, this is I was, getting good. I was, I was going to talk about a situation where, uh, you know, my husband and I, we were visiting South Carolina and we were refused service in a restaurant and everyone white. else who was seated was white. And we were told, your table's not ready. And oh, yeah, this happened. And the thing is, people just don't believe that it happened. Like, that's the thing. Not that when you look around, every single person seated at that restaurant was white and the only two people of color were being told, your table's not ready, whereas people walking in off the street are being told, sure, sit wherever you want. But no. But I, to, to get back to an example uh, specific to academia, I mean, there was a, not too long ago, um, I attended a geoscience conference and um, there was... It, it was a very, very large geoscience conference and there was some issue with booking a room for a meeting. You know, We were going to do a presentation, coincidentally, on implicit bias and diversity and inclusion. And so the group was going to meet ahead of time just to go over talking points. And you, there was a system where you needed to book the rooms and ahead of time in order to use them. And this was in a huge conference hall, which was also the poster hall. That That only opened at nine a m. And um the rooms inside the poster hall that we were booked, that we had booked could be booked from, in fact, earlier, um eight a m. And so there was this gray area where the security guards were all standing there and just letting people in, even though officially the hours were not, uh, you know, it, it wasn't yet poster hall time. And people were being let in. All of my colleagues were already waiting for me. And as I tried to enter, the security guard stopped me and said, you know, unless you have a poster, I can't let you in because this is the poster hall and it opens at 9. And this was a white security guard. And in the geosciences, you know, you kind of stand out as a person of color. And I asked this person, I said, but all my colleagues are inside and you let them in. And he, you know, and, and, and while I'm saying this to him, there are other people walking around me who are all white who are walking in. And so I just started, you know, I just continued to walk. And, uh, you know, like I said, I don't fit the whole docile obedience stereotype. (laughs) So I just started walking and I said, if these people can walk in, I'm going to walk in too. So then he started following me and saying, ma'am, I'm going to have you escorted out of the center. And I said, but you're letting other people in. And he said, it doesn't matter. You disobeyed my direct instruction. So at that point, I just left. Now, this is a huge, massive geoscience conference. And uh, then I just called my colleagues and I said, guess what, I'm stuck outside. All of you made it in, all of you are white. And, uh, you know, I'm. they didn't let me in. So then they came out and, you know, they got me and we went to another entrance and, and we got in. But But the thing is that, A, this happened in a geoscience conference. But the other thing that bothered me and why I sometimes hesitate to share it is that whenever I narrate this, people say, oh, it's an isolated incident. Oh, it's a one-off thing. And So there is a tendency to dismiss that this happened rather than, okay, we need to, you know, work to make sure things like this don't happen. So in fact, I wanted to write about it and, uh, you know, a particular... You know, magazine editor said, No, you can't put that down because it's quote unquote uh it's an an unproven allegation. And I was like, What do you mean unproven allegation? Like there were witnesses who will be willing to come forward and tell you that this happened. So there is that and, and that's what I mean when I say policing, I mean in terms of what you can or cannot say. And and the funny thing is that most of the people of color who I've spoken to in the geosciences have all had very similar experiences in some form or the other. So it, it isn't just me. It's, it happens to people all the time. It's just that there is a great reluctance, a resistance to to believe that, A, this happens, and, B, that it happens at the scale that it does to people of color. Yeah.
0: It... it um... It must happen repeatedly. I mean, there's this story I heard of—I of, think she was a professor of economics and lived in a nice apartment building—and mm-hmm. was in the elevator one day with a neighbor who had never seen her before. And the neighbor said, "Who do you work for?" <laughs> thought she was the nanny or the the maid.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's you know, those 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 sorts of things, you know, happen. All the time, and they happen. Yeah, that the
0: repetition of Mm -hmm. it. It's 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 the repetition.
1: It's very exhausting.
0: So, what can we do about this? What can institutions do as policy remedies? What can individuals do to help make it less repetitive, less hurtful?
1: One is, and I think probably the single most important piece, which might sound very obvious, is to actually acknowledge that a problem exists, which many people don't. You know, they're very likely to say this was a one-off or this was, you know, something that, you know, quote-unquote regrettable or unfortunate because they'll avoid using words like racist. But the other thing that everyone can do on an individual level, whether they're a student or a postdoc or, you know, the, the director or the president of an institution, is to... Educate themselves on the subject, because, you know, for example, in in, in the recent piece, as I said, a college president's when they were asked about in the college presidents survey, when they were asked about race relations on U.S. campuses, only about 25 percent of them said that race relations on U.S. campuses were good overall. But 81% of them said that race relations on their own campuses were good or excellent. Mm -hmm. And so there is this, yes, (laughs) there is a tendency for people to believe that even if a problem exists, it doesn't lie with them. And therefore, it's not their responsibility to fix it. And I think that mindset needs to go, like there needs to be this massive shift in mindset where people take ownership and acknowledge that this is a problem and take responsibility towards fixing it.
0: Yeah, I guess one way of looking at it is to think, this doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It means I can learn and do better.
1: Absolutely. And that's the way, that's that's the encouraging part where so many people have actually responded exactly that way and who have initially said that it was a very uncomfortable subject, but the more they read about it, the more they discussed it the more they realized how important it was for them to take on this role and to and and to work towards it so for example you know when you have um diversity and inclusion events it's really important for leadership to show up as well or uh my role which is both academic affairs and diversity it's really important for there to be a a diversity advocate on the inside. So for example, looking at salary equity issues, looking at who gets hired or who gets appointed to a leadership position and so on. So these are the sorts of things that often happen behind closed doors that happen privately, where there's only one demographic of the people who are making these decisions. And so just like it's important to have an external visible component of bias trainings and readings and seminars and so on that are all aimed at diversity, it's equally important to, to strike at the heart of the institution to modify its internal policies and procedures to make them more equitable because these structures fundamentally are just not equitable.
0: And we deny ourselves the, the uh, values, the, the progress, the profits of diversity. Absolutely. It, it always amazes me that studies have shown mm-hmm. that, for instance, the more women are in executive positions in a, co- a company, mm-hmm. the more money the company. The better makes. it
1: performs, right? Now,
0: wouldn't you think that would be self <laughs> self supporting? I mean, that the idea that 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 research showed it, people would scramble to get more women in those positions, but they don't.
1: Unfortunately, people like to define their own image of how they want others to view them. So rather than take an implicit bias test and say, oh no, I'm biased, I need to work on it, they're more likely to say, I know I'm not biased, the test is wrong. And then also it's really, really important to, you know, how we communicate something is just as important as what we communicate. So just making sure that the message goes out that these things are important and that People should, you know, in fact, pay attention to them. And, and, and in scientific fields, I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've ever worked with scientists. I mean, they are extremely creative. They're extremely innovative. They're problem solvers at heart. And so I flat out reject the notion that somehow they don't have it in them to address this issue. It's more about willingness and motivation to address it? And, you know, what's the benefit? Because the people who are already privileged, to them it isn't going to make a difference one way or the other whether other other marginalized groups are included or not. And so it's this larger issue of doing something because it's the right thing to do versus doing something because, well, maybe someone isn't impacted by it.
0: Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. It's at at the the point of where our culture is is headed if it continues to, to grow I think it's a, this has been a really important discussion. Before we close, we always ask seven quick questions. <laughs> hope you don't mind. Sure they they're, they're not uh, they're not tough questions. What do you wish you really understood?
1: in an implicit well, bias? Or? No
0: about anything.
1: <laughs> I, About
0: the universe, <laughs> what, what, being alive, whatever.
1: <laughs> what do I wish I really understood? I don't know. I guess maybe influenced by my line of work, how people really think and what I could do to impact how they think.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I mean, I mean, take for example. I mean, I mean, I work in the larger field of diversity in the geosciences and. The geosciences includes climate science, and climate change, I think we can all agree, is perhaps one of the most defining issues of our generation. And unless we can bring in the best talent for this field, we're not going to be able to find the best solutions or implement the best policies. So that's
0: a direct connection between bias, gender bias, for instance, and and, then every other other kind of bias, Mm -hmm. affecting a specific science which we'll all depend on to survive.
1: Absolutely. I mean, diversity and inclusion is something like that, that the message needs to be communicated in a certain way that appeals to people's individual judgment in a way that makes them feel that they need to act immediately.
0: That's great. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
1: (laughs) Um... Now, when you say facts, let's, um, maybe I'll qualify that a little bit. If it's just a statistical number, then you can just point out, you know, what what that study said or what those numbers were. If, however, it is a fact, it is a a fact that is actually, that reflects a certain belief, quote unquote, some people don't believe in climate change or some people don't, then at some point you're just going to have to have the courage to call it out. I mean, you know, there are I mean sometimes, you know, when I when I encounter s- s- some you know a reaction like that in a field of diversity and inclusion, something about implicit bias, the way I'll respond is Hmm, interesting. What made you say that? And then when they whatever it is their responses I'll say, "Hmm, but have you considered and then I'll add in a few right. more things." And and usually, you know, this happens in a very public platform, so I have to be very mindful of what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. But I guess if it was a one-on-one private conversation, I'd probably be more direct.
0: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, since we're on the subject of uh, diversity, inclusion, and implicit bias, one time somebody asked me if I uh, quote unquote read books in my own language, and why. <laughs> now, and why this was especially funny is that I was I happened to be with two other people, both were you know white, uh, blonde, blue eyed, one from Germany and one from Russia, and all three of us. You know, spoke and speak with accents. But the person asking the question only asked me, Koheli, do you read books in your own language? But didn't ask the German woman or the Russian woman. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I like to believe I'm fluent in English. I've spoken it since I was three years old. But the fact that someone would ask me, oh, do you read books in your own language? But not ask that same question right. to, to, you know, to, to the two white people, international white people beside me.
0: How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: <laughs> I guess switching off the microphone when you've had <laughs> enough.
0: <laughs> I was wondering the same thing the other day when I was 45 minutes into a monologue, with the other, listening to a monologue. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone sitting next to you at a dinner party who you don't know?
1: Um, it depends on the vibe, actually. I mean, it's. I guess one can't give a general answer. It Depends on the vibe I get from that person. But I'd probably start talking about, you know, something. I don't know, something to do with that dinner party, and then extend it to other topics. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, that was <laughs> probably <laughs> no, not what no. you were asking for.
0: <laughs> <laughs> These are just just to see what occurs to you at the moment. <laughs> what what gives you confidence?
1: good question um again i'm you know speaking from the point of view of you know of of my role of of the work that i do i think the support that i've received from so many people across the board including people from dominant groups i mean the fact that so many white men senior white men support my work in my office i think that definitely gives me the sense of this buy-in, that people have this buy-in, that people, you know, support it, that gives me the confidence to do a lot of this other stuff. Like, you know, for example, writing what some would consider a very hard-hitting piece or just doing presentations that push people out of their comfort zones. So, maybe that.
0: What book changed your life?
1: Oh, I think there probably... Too many to name. I mean, does it have to be only one book, or could I name at a few? Well, can you—does one few? come to mind
0: that's, that just pops into your head?
1: Um, I think Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. Huh. I read it as an undergrad, and it just—I mean, I read it again and again, and I think that might have been one, But but, but there are others as well.
0: <laughs> so, tell me about why Aldous Huxley's book, Doors of Perception— meant so much to you when you read it. How old were you when you read it?
1: Uh, I was an undergrad, a, a, a undergraduate, so, you know, probably late teens, early 20s. I, it was just, I guess it was so novel. I mean, you know, he wrote this book under the influence of mescaline, and it was just how the brain perceives things under that influence, and that's what the book is rooted in. But it just, it just felt so different from, you know, from, other things I had read, and it's just the subject matter was so, um, you know, so so different that I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it just it just it it, it 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 impacted me. Like I felt struck
0: by it. Did you think differently or approach tasks differently after you read it? Did it did it really change you in some way?
1: I think pretty much any book that impacts you has that effect. I mean, it it changes a little bit of your thinking and you incorporate that. So um, I don't know if that particular one impacted me more or less in terms of changing my behavior, but I'd say that's true about a lot of the books I read. In fact, especially in my line of work where I'm reading about these highly sensitive and sometimes very difficult subjects, yes, many of them um, impact you know, how I go forward, how I think, how I act, how I frame something. So.
0: Well, you frame things really well for me today because <laughs> I'm going to be even more attentive to my biases. I, I came in thinking I already was, but I think I'm going out more committed to it than before.
1: Thank you so much. Thank
0: you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Dr. Kuhali Dutt is the Assistant Director for Academic Affairs and Diversity at the Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. She also serves as Lamont's diversity officer. Dr. Dutt has a PhD in public policy and extensive experience developing diversity and inclusion initiatives. Her research on race and racism have been published in Nature Geoscience. Her book, Women in the Geosciences, was published by the American Geophysical Union, and her op-ed on how implicit bias and lack of diversity undermine science was published in Scientific American. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Shermay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with James Green, chief scientist at NASA. Jim, this has been a wonderful conversation, and you're such a great communicator. Just, just to give them a taste, would you say something very communicative right now?
2: Oh, I work for NASA.
0: Who doesn't like that? What do we find? Where do we go? Is there life in the solar system and beyond? I knew I could just get you to say something. on the If I woke you up in the middle of the night, you'd say something interesting. Thank you so much. Next time on Clear and Vivid, Jim Green.